Hi, I'm Tara. And I'm Alex. And this is Dream a Little Deeper, a critical retrospective on the Walt Disney Animation Studios films. And today, the story of friendship that scarred us all as children, we're talking about the fox and the hound. mentioned and explained throughout the last chunk of episodes, the 1970s was a turbulent time for Walt Disney Productions as a whole. Company leadership kept changing, live-action films were not popular, the animation department saw consistent clashes between its veteran animators and new recruits, and was still lost without the guidance of Walt Disney, who at this point in history died 10 years ago. The massive financial and critical success of The Rescuers helped, but only marginally. I mentioned last time that film rentals dropped a bit in 1977, but company profits increased for the most part during the mid-1970s, thanks to the revenue brought in from the parks. Film rentals did better in 1978, but by the end of 1979, there was an 11% decline in profits and a 26% decline in operating income. people, specifically young adults and teenagers, were more interested in seeing movies like Jaws, Star Wars, and Raiders of the Lost Ark, two of which ironically Disney now owns. But at the time, Cardwalker was apprehensive to greenlight anything that would get a PG-13 rating, let alone an R rating. So the public began to lose interest in Walt Disney Productions' output. In 1979, Disney tried something new. It teamed up with Paramount Pictures to work together on the 1980 film adaptation of Popeye and the 1981 film Dragon Slayer. Basically, Paramount distributed Disney films in Canada, and because Disney was such a big name in the States, it hoped Disney marketing would help sell the two films. Critics warmed to Popeye over time, and Dragon Slayer got some fairly good reviews. So clearly, Disney's name still held some sort of weight in the media world, but that didn't mean the public was particularly interested in its output. In 1979, then-NBC president Fred Silverman demanded changes to the company's television show to make it more modern and reflect the fact that, you know, Walt wasn't the host anymore. The show became Disney's Wonderful World, and it had an updated opening sequence with a disco theme song and a computer-generated logo. The program was 60 minutes and was mostly used to show old films, so ratings tanked, not to mention NFL broadcasts often interfered with its broadcast time. Now, there was something else happening in the television industry at this time that didn't apply to Disney, but definitely influenced the 1979 fall television season, and set up a major strike that will happen in 1982. So I want to get into that real quick. So, because of a variety of worldwide historical events prior to 1980, like World War I and the Global Depression, the United States began to emerge as the world's economic powerhouse. And because U.S. corporations backed Hollywood films, we see Hollywood come out above other film industries in other countries. The economic power behind Hollywood films, plus their messages of pleasure and escapism, as well as the promise of the American dream, made them popular, and something the country was eager to export to other countries. Germany attempted to be a film powerhouse back when the Nazis had control over the country. A film studio produced an adaptation of Renard the Fox. Unlike studios in the U.S., there were no unions and no eight-hour workday requirements. Hollywood didn't end up bringing the film to the U.S. because it felt it was too culturally specific to Germany for people in the U.S. to like it. However, American studios took notice of how the film was produced and wanted to utilize the lower-paid artists in other countries. 
This eventually leads to many studios outsourcing animation, and Disney Television Animation did hop on board with this. There were some issues with cultural differences, as there were language barriers. Brad Bird notes one conversation he had with a Hungarian animator that was insensitive. So, if you want to learn more about it, read Chapter 9 of Tom Cito's book, Drawing the Line. But to combat this, other countries would pay LA artists a buttload of money to go abroad and teach Hollywood production techniques to workers who, all in all, made very little. Local unions in Los Angeles had been watching these outsourcing efforts since the 1950s, so animators expressed a desire for protective language in contracts so their jobs would not be outsourced. But nothing really happened with this until 1978, when new leadership in a local motion picture screen cartoonists union demanded a runaway production clause from the studio doing television production. Basically, no producer could subcontract work outside Los Angeles unless sufficient employees were unavailable. A lot of animators felt this language was not strong enough, but the union leadership said they wanted to propose a clause that was likely to pass, and called it a foot in the door. However, studios did not take the request seriously. They didn't think serious action would actually happen because they thought the union was too divided and animators too self-interested. So, on August 7th, 1979, the union went on strike and studios were shocked. Production managers had a rage fest. There are accounts of them throwing chairs, screaming, kicking desks in rage. Hannah from the animation house Hanna-Barbera drove through the picket line and told one assistant animator he sympathized with them. LAPD was sent out to make sure things didn't get out of hand, and even told strikers that the sticks on their signs were too thick and could be used as clubs, so the signs were not allowed. But then it noted, the book noted later that police realized the strikers weren't violent, so they were like, okay, you guys can keep the signs, it's fine. The strike went on, and producers were worried about not making deadlines with the big three networks, because remember, these were all television animators. So, the networks buckled and agreed to the clause. It was a big win, but studios still didn't take the requirement seriously. Within a week, Ruby Spears violated the clause and was slapped with a whopping $50,000 fine. This was a win for workers, but studios remembered the strike and began to prevent something like this from happening. And while I'm not in charge of history after this episode, I'm assuming we're going to get to this in a later episode. I, I mean, I guess we are I now. I have all the notes all right. for you, so okay, you don't have to good. do any work. <laughs> good. Share the research. It's at the bottom of this document. If any, you, you, you give him, if you're out here laying plot threads I have to pick up, you better give me the, you better give me the materials to do yes. it, because I'm, I got my own interests. I was going to say, it's all at the bottom of the document. I'd like to note that workers at smaller animation houses like Hanna-Barbera and Marvel and Ruby Spears were the most at risk without the clause. Disney, on the other hand, had no intention to outsource animation at the time. But that is important and something to keep in mind, because after the Fox and the Hound's premiere, things get a little more dicey. Now, back to Walt Disney, the television show. So NBC canceled the show in 1981. CBS ended up picking up the show that year, renamed it Walt Disney, and slotted it to air Saturday at 8 p.m. Walt Disney Productions got a full season, but not much of it was new material. Uh, the company used it to test pilots for shows on Pollyanna, Escape to Witch Mountain, and The Apple Dumpling Gang, but only the latter was greenlit into a half-hour sitcom. So, it's an arm of the company, but not a strong one at the time. Again, this normally would not be an issue for a company with as many arms as Walt Disney Productions. 
But there was still this desire to have a better animation department, as that is what started the company and made Walt Disney famous. The What Would Walt Do paralysis became more widespread and well-known outside the company. The New York Times Magazine said its critics were, quote, disenchanted with the quality of animation and with the style of storytelling, end quote. They go on to say the company wanted to return to, quote, the golden days of Snow White and Bambi, end quote. However, the article indicated some excitement for Don Bluth and the group of animators beneath him, which helped the overall view of the company. Additionally, reruns of the older animated films were considered a success, and the state of the animation department would be way worse off without that. Other trade publications were more favorable of the company's output. Other trade publications had a more positive take. The financial world said Walt's successors were preparing for a journey that would carry the company to new heights. Peter and Waterman's praised the company's management. And yet behind closed doors, there were more changes in leadership. I mentioned this last episode, but Don Tatum retired in 1980 and Walker took over as chairman. Ron Miller then stepped in as the president and COO. After nearly 30 years of consistent management, this is the company's fourth president in 14 years. Really, the only arm of the company that didn't suffer from the what would Walt do paralysis was the parks, which was the main focus of the company in the 70s and 80s, especially Walt Disney World. Because of the Florida park success, Disney executives announced plans for a second theme park in 1978, Epcot Center, which would open in 1982. Epcot would be inspired by Walt's futuristic model city that he had wanted to make into a real city. If you'll remember, that model was the original plan for the Florida property, but executives decided to make it a second Disneyland park. But then, 1981 rolls around. An annual report says the net income of the company is down 10% because of the poor returns on live-action films and Epcot startup costs. By the early 1980s, the parks were generating 70% of Disney's income, so the film division ended up suffering. Now, I know I just covered about five years of company history here, but I wanted to get all this out on the front end of the episode to establish the larger company's activities and priorities. Basically, film and television weren't hitting like they used to, but the parks were popular. So the company placed their focus and their money on the parks, which meant the film departments, including the animation department, saw smaller budgets. In fact, there is record of a lack of significant money put into the animation department in Nathalia Holt's book, Queens of Animation. And former Disney animator Steve Hewlett would later recall Reitherman telling the department they had to make all of their pictures cheaper after the release of The Rescuers in 1977. So after The Rescuers, the next movie that was supposed to come out was The Black Cauldron. But that production process had a lot of issues going on, all of which Tara will get into in our next episode. Oh, yeah. So while there's, there's a lot of them. So while newer animators toil away on that production, Walt Disney Productions felt it would be best to go back to its roots and animate a more, quote, traditional Disney feature. The 1967 book is by Daniel P. Mannix, and if you thought Bambi was a hyper-realistic look at what it's like to be an animal in North America, then you were sorely mistaken. Mannix somehow made his book even more realistic. He even had his own foxes that he studied and tried to make sense of their instincts by writing. So the book still centers around Todd the Fox and Copper the Hound. 
but it's dark. Todd leads Chief, who lives with Copper, to his death. Copper is jealous of Chief and happy that he dies. Copper's owner kills Todd's mate, and then his entire family and new mate get gunned down. The ending is depressing. Basically, Todd and Copper get into a day-long chase. Copper's master kills Todd, and then is despondent because he killed all the foxes while trying to kill Todd, so he gets drunk and kills Copper. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. The big thing is that the animals are not anthropomorphized. Mannix depicts them as wild animals in a story of survival. Some scholars say it would have worked better as a true life documentary, but since Bambi had become so popular, Fox and the Hound seemed like a safe story to do as an animated film because the two had similar roots. The company bought the rights the same year the book came out, but production didn't start until 1977 when Wolfgang Reitherman, whose son had a pet fox at one point in his life, read the book. We have a bit of a shakeup when it comes to production leadership. Uh, the film was directed by Ted Berman, Richard Rich, and Art Stevens. It was Berman and Rich's directorial debut. Uh, Ron Miller, Wolfgang Reitherman, and Art Stevens produced it. The studio pulled a few of Eric Larson's recruits, like Don Bluth, Ron Clements, and Gary Goldman to work on it. Union head Steve Hewlett was a writer for the film. The crew also included the first American women animators since Laverne Harding, like Heidi Goodall who we've talked about before on this show. There were five total in this project. Notably, this would also be the last film that any of the nine old men worked on. At this point, only Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnston, and Wolfgang Reitherman were left in the animation department. Milt Call, Mark Davis, and Ward Kimball had all retired or moved on to different departments. As I mentioned in earlier episodes, Eric Larson was focused on training new recruits. John Lausenberry, Fred Moore, and Les Clark have all passed away by this point. While only a third of the original veteran animators remained, their voices were strong and they believed their thinking was the right way. This created a lot of tension in the group between the veterans and the newbies, specifically between Wolfgang Reitherman and Art Stevens. Reitherman and Stevens had different ideas on designs and layouts. Ron Miller, more often than not, had to settle disputes between the two and supported Stevens. There hit a point when Miller went so far as to tell Reitherman to just give the project to Stevens, but Reitherman didn't trust young animators coward. However, there were times when Stevens was at odd with the new animators as well. Ron Clements didn't like that Chief survived, saying the movie doesn't work if he just breaks his leg. Other younger members agreed with him. Stevens said, quote, we never killed a main character in a Disney film and we're not starting now. The main Cowards. So the young members took this issue to upper management and they all backed Stevens. Notably, this is another time animators decided against killing a character opting for the less traumatic injury, the first being Trusty's death in Lady and the Tramp. In Clements we trust, honestly. <laughs> that needs to be on a t-shirt. Tensions were high, and it all culminated in the infamous scooby dooby dooby doo let your body turn to goo incident. Excuse me? <laughs> So, in 1979, about three quarters of the way through production, Reitherman decided the Fox and the Hound needed a song suite sequence to help liven up the second act. The musical sequence would feature two cranes, voiced by Phil Harris and Charo, and they would sing a silly song titled, Scooby Dooby Dooby Doo, Let Your Body Turn to Goo. They filmed live-action reference shots with Charo jumping around in a leotard and wrote the song. But the studio executives, including Ron Miller, hated the scene, feeling like it distracted from the main plot. 
Stevens held story conferences, and eventually the scene was removed from the movie. At this point, Reitherman gives up, lamenting that maybe he just wasn't cut out for creating new movies anymore. He removed himself from the project and moved to an undeveloped project called Catfish Bend, which was never made. He would later die in a car accident in 1985. <laughs> I'm not laughing at the fact that this man died in a car accident. I'm laughing at the fact that this is it is included in this paragraph like it has something to do with the song getting cut. Well, it's more just like this is the end. This is this is the end of Reitherman. We're not going back to him. I know, but it's like I, I, I and we're leaving it there. It's fine. It's very funny, but just but yeah. Oh yeah, It he, was just to emphasize that this guy's just like it just got Done. worse and worse and worse. Yep. <laughs> okay. It also made it sound like somebody like the car accident was a direct result of the of the let your body turn to goo incident. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> oh. Oh my goodness. Oh lord. <laughs> Reitherman's exit surely would have been a positive for the younger animators. Many felt and expressed their dislike for him, saying he was too stern, difficult to work with, so strict he made people cry and out of touch. Don Bluth was very vocal about his disapproval of the direction the studio was going in. Likening himself to the next Walt Disney, Bluth said he felt like Walt Disney Productions was animating the same picture over and over again, and talked about leaving often. He wanted to reinvigorate animation, restore family values to animation, and Ron Miller encouraged these ambitions. Some books say Miller was setting Bluth up to take over the animation department. He even offered Bluth a co-director position on Fox and the Hound with Reitherman, but Bluth declined, wanting to focus on his independent short Banjo the Woodpile Cat at set of work. Miller had suspicions Bluth was doing this and even asked him if he wanted to resign, but he didn't at this point in time. Now, other animators were not as jazzed about the future Bluth takeover and worried about his influence. They know a distinct divide within the department, the Bluthers, a term used to refer to Bluth's loyal following at work, and the Mouseketeers. Bluth's group, which included Bill Croyer, Brad Bird, Henry Selleck, and John Musker, had a meeting with Miller about the future of Walt Disney Animation. Bluth resigned shortly after, on September 13, 1979, with Carrie Goldman and John Pomeroy, to start his own animation studio. While they animated several scenes that made it into The Fox and the Hound, they asked to not get screen credit for their work. A third of the staff, notably a lot of women in this group, left the company after him. Bluth Studio, which drew upon hyperrealism and the Disney formalist style developed in the late 30s and 40s, became Disney's main competition, and his major success with An American Tale and The Land Before Time was a kick in the pants for Disney management. They began to see the potential earnings animation could bring in, and this will set up another major shift in 1984 that Tara will talk about. Ron Miller took this personally and was outraged. The exit damaged the company's reputation, and industry experts said the mass exodus would be the demise of the animation department. In his book, Drawing the Line, The Untold Story of Animation Unions, Tom Cito claims the exit, quote, marks the turning point when the golden age artists of Pinocchio and Bambi pass the torch finally and forever to the baby boom generation. Disney had to hire new animators, veteran assistant animators became in charge of quality control, and more work was shuffled to other veterans. The studio pushed back the Fox and the Hound's release date from Christmas of 1980 to summer 1981. Notably, this would be the last Disney movie with no complete role credits at the end. We've touched on this briefly before, but Disney was selective about who got credited for their work. 
Not everyone was, a practice that really started at the company's inception when Walt just straight up did not give credit to anyone in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves except himself. While Tom Cito says the movie opened to a lackluster box office, it was the 14th highest grossing film that year, bringing in $39.9 million in its original release. Leonard Maltin says, quote, the studio hierarchy pointed to box office receipts to prove that they had been right to make this kind of film. But animation buffs despaired that the studio was doling out the same old stuff and inhibiting the potential of their new recruits, end quote. And these sentiments were expressed in reviews, which were mixed. The general public thought the animation and voice acting was good, but not groundbreaking. Vincent Camby with the New York Times said, the film, quote, breaks no new ground whatsoever, end quote, while describing it as a, quote, pretty, relentlessly cheery, old-fashioned sort of Disney cartoon feature, chock full of bouncy songs of an upbeatness that is stickier than crazy glue, and played by animals more anthropomorphic than the humans that occasionally appear, end quote. Get em. <laughs> Sheila Benson with the LA Times liked the animation, thought the story played it safe, and urges Disney to not protect us from the pain of loss. David Anson with Newsweek said, quote, adults may wince at some of the sticky sweet songs, but the movie is not intended for grown-ups, end quote. In his book, Demystifying Disney, Chris Pallant says the movie does draw upon the hyper-realist style of earlier films, but that we see a lower degree of detail. The multiplane shot in the beginning, for one, is not cell animation, and instead develops limited depth of field through background art and not actual planes of field. Additionally, Pallant takes issue with the effects animation, saying it does not increase realism consistently. He basically has a lot of issues with the rain in the film. Pallant also says the issues behind the walkout are apparent. He claims the storyline, one about maturing animals, is nothing original. He notes that, as was typical in the Xerox era, animators did reuse animation from earlier films. It's not as obvious with this movie, I definitely haven't seen a side-by-side -side comparison like I do with Robin Hood, but there's a scene with quails that's straight up from Bambi, just inverted. Additionally, a squirrel jumps just like Wart does when he's a squirrel in The Sword and the Stone. But with all that being said, The Fox and the Hound did win the 1982 Golden Screen Award. It was also nominated for a Saturn Award and a Youth and Film Award. So, thoughts, opinions, feelings? <laughs> I don't even know. Yeah. I Yeah, just... There's a good movie in here somewhere. Okay, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Because I felt the same way. It was one of those things where I was like, I can see the like crumbs of like what could be a very like emotional, compelling movie, but it's like they ignored everything that could make it good. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, let's put two birds in this. And yeah. Then that 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 became the movie and some random songs that have nothing to do really some, with some, the movie. Some random songs with the fucking rhyme scheme uh, befitting a seven year old. Yes. Like holy shit. It was so odd, and I think like and it was something that I could sense was going to be an issue at the get go. Because, once again, we kind of have a 
different sort of cold open slash credit hybrid going on in the opening moments. And at first, you know, you, you got the music, you got the eerie smoke. You're like, okay, vibes. And then you got like the forest, you know, and nature. And you're like, okay. But then like when the action starts to pick up and we see the fox, the mom fox running away from the hunters, they decide to like break up the chase with the credits yeah and i thought that i I thought it cut all the tension like that Uh opening shot of the fox popping up with the music i was like oh yeah but then it just kept going and Uh the credits were so annoying to look at because i was like the font work is very bad it's so bad and the color was off too yeah it really it does not work it doesn't um but i will say uh, Fox, the Fox and the Hound does at least have the courage to bravely pause it. What if we killed Bambi's mom in the first five minutes of the movie? Yes, that is true. And they deserve to be commended for that masterstroke of bad ideas. <laughs> but yeah, it was just like, they dragged it on for so long, and then they're trying to throw these names at you that don't look good on the screen. So then by the time they do, the hunters do shoot the fox, you're just kind of like, okay... Yeah, been here. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of the pattern we see for every emotional beat throughout the movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 not breaking new ground. It's not creative. It's just... We've been here before. Yes. It's very pretty, but we've been here before. It is very pretty. I agree with that. Um, I know, like, in the history section, Palant was like... It's, like, okay, you know, the style of it. So I was kind of expecting something a little, like, lackluster. But I thought it looked all right. Yeah, it looks fine. It looks fine. They definitely were like, yeah, what if we tried to do Bambi again in the background, in our in our backgrounds? And I will say, the background artists, the environmental design is top, like, top class firing on all cylinders. Oh, yeah. Um. But, yeah, just, I don't know. I. It also... I was too busy thinking about the fa- like during that opening credit sequence. I was too busy thinking about the fact that, wow, some automatically recognizable names for normal people are in this movie. Kurt Russell, Mickey Rooney. Yeah, yeah. I was like, excuse me, excuse me, hi, hello, what? <laughs> like, okay, sounds good. Like, modernity is here? Question mark. Yes. Well, I guess yeah, because we're in the. It feels weird because, I think you bring up a good point because. This is the 80s, yep. you know, but when you're watching the movie, you kind of almost forget it's the 80s, except uh-huh. for the fact that you hear the actor, certain actors with these voices. You're just kind of like, it, it feels like something that they would have made in like the 60s. I was about to say that. Yeah. Yeah. It really does. It's, it's, it's almost distract. It's, it's very distracting because like some parts of it look prettier than others. Um, I noticed that when like. For certain close-up shots, it's extremely blurry. Yes. It's very fuzzy. And I'm wondering if that's not just a bad Disney Plus transfer. Uh Because some... uh, I think it might just be a bad transfer. Because there's, like, some other... Like, the the close-up on Todd's face when he sees uh, the horrendously named Vixie uh, for the first time... And he's all fuzzy and out of focus, and then it pushes in on her and fucking crisp, 
clean lines. And I'm just like, what are we, what are we fucking doing here? I was wondering if that was just me. No. Because I also, I noticed that, which like, I think the blurry bits, they do a lot with like the backgrounds because again, forest. Right. But, but when you're, when you're zooming in on your ostensibly main character's faces, like they do it to the birds a bunch too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's really, it's really off-putting because... At that point, I'm beginning to think more about, like, well, okay, is this, like, an upscaled SD transfer? Is this a downscaled 4K transfer? What are we doing here? Yeah. And I'm beginning, and I've, I'm completely sucked out of it because of that. Plus, I'm having to sit there and mentally debate whether or not this is, like, did did they just, like, was the camera smudged that day? What's right. going on? I mean, like, I watched this one as a kid, but, like, all I remembered really was um, the scene where the widow has to calm the cow after Todd went after the chickens. I, like, could recite that whole scene in my head for some reason. And the caterpillar. Those were the only two things I really remembered. So who knows? It might have just transferred like that. But then again, I haven't seen any other version of it in, like, at least 15 years. I also wouldn't be surprised because Disney is showing their entire ass in a lot of places on Disney Plus with just some of the worst fucking transfers I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, I know that's not very Fox and the Hound related, but uh, I'm sorry this happens when you get me talking about visual quality. (laughs) They're bad transfers on Disney Plus. I don't understand how they let this happen. I mean, I do because it's cheap. Kind of like, okay, backtracking a little bit, just because I remember we talked about this. Do you think, like, this is... Because I thought the Fantasia transfer looked pretty good. Yeah. Com- um, but then, like, you have that compared to, like, other things we've seen, right? Yeah. And, like, other movies of theirs on Disney Plus that are, like... It's fun. It, I, I feel like the transfers of stuff I've seen on Disney Plus that isn't, like, Disney in-house, specifically, mm-hmm. have been kind of weird and wonky. Yeah. Um, But, like... This is the first one of their mainline ones where I'm like, something feels wrong here. Yeah. Like, I, I, I haven't brought this up with any of the other ones. I feel like, like even the package films felt pretty, like, f- felt like they looked pretty okay. Oh, yeah. But this is the first one where I'm like, something's wrong here. I felt that with Jungle Book. I know I brought up, like, the weird frame rates and stuff. Yeah. Which could have, you know, like, which I felt... Because I've seen... That's when I did see a lot, and I remember that not being the case on the VHS I watched. So I think, right. like... Maybe it's just, like, a Xerox thing, like... It might be. Uh, yeah, it might be, because it, 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 like, yeah, it could just be the era we're in. Yeah. But it's sad. It's sad. Yeah, because, like, there, there's some great shit in this movie, visually. Oh, yeah. Uh, that fucking bear is animated like one of the dinosaurs in it's Fantasia. So it's so good. Like, it's got that weird, like, anytime they're, like, out at night on that, like, waterfall cliff... Mm-hmm. Uh, and that they get like shiny for some reason. It looks cool. Uh, it, it it's great. You know what doesn't look good? The mist, the water mist over all of it when they're right next to that. I'm like, y'all just took footage of mist and put it over top. I also personally didn't like the way the rain looked as soon as he got to the preserve. It was too repetitive. It was like yeah. they took the same like. 30 frames and just like repeated it over and over and over again yeah um 
I'm pretty sure in Demystifying Disney, Palant talks at some point about like the, the, the length of time you need to have of rain before you can repeat it. And he says mm-hmm. it's like two seconds worth of rain. Not even that. It no. is just like chunk, 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 chunk. It's, yeah. it's distracting. Uh, to be fair, though, uh, when he's getting dropped off at the game preserve, the rain effect was supplemented by my tears. So it's fine. <laughs> okay. That was the hardest part of the film for me. Uh-huh. I was I I didn't full out cry, but I was tearing up, and I think that's the biggest emotional response I've had. That's not been outside of nostalgia, you know, right. like something like yeah. actually watching this and experiencing it mm-hmm. for what feels like the first time. Yeah, uh, I like you know it's coming, which gives you a little bit of time to build it up in your head, but uh-huh. also like it's just. It's such a very specific emotion, right? Like, everyone that has had a pet knows what that feels like in some way, shape, or form, and it fucking sucks. Yeah. Ugh. And that's, like, the one situation where I felt like the spoken word song worked better than the other spoken word songs that we had. It worked a little bit better. It's still not good, but it's, like, a more honest... It feels more honest, you know? Yeah. And if I'm being honest, the words weren't what got me. It was, like, the fact that Todd was just, like, hopping around so excited to be in the car. And then figured out what was going on. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. she just looks so guilty and upset because you Mm -hmm. know, and you're just like, oh, children. Yeah. Yeah, it made me me really think about the day we, uh, we got the, 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 we, uh, we fostered a, a stray dog at one point, uh, that we just picked up off the side of the road. Uh, so this, like, this whole, that whole, like, stretch of the movie really fucking, like, hit that point home. And I'm like, ah, damn it. <laughs> Emotions. I hate. I hate this. I'm making the movie making me feel things. This scene and the emotions felt when watching it was the one thing that guests consistently mentioned during their interviews. Emily specifically brought this moment up where Widow Tweed leaves Todd at the game preserve and got a bit emotional. First of all, they don't use people. So you don't realize that you're relating to them. You're not like looking at a person that maybe doesn't look like you and totally writing off their story. You're looking at a dog, which most people, I would say, at least tolerate dogs, (laughs) and a fox, and they're cute. And you look at them and their story and you don't, you don't put yourself in their shoes and you don't like automatically judge them either because they're animals. And I think that's part of why they pull it off so well is you don't realize it until afterwards. Um, you know, and I don't even think as a kid I maybe realized it, but at, you know, that scene in Fox and the Hound where she leaves the fox. Oh my gosh. Okay. Like he's growing up and he's having to leave people behind that aren't supposed to be a part of his life anymore. And that's something that everybody goes through. And he's losing a friend because of their, essentially their, like, cultural differences, if you think about it. You know, he's a fox. This dog is meant to, like, hunt and kill this fox. But he doesn't want to because they're friends. They're conflicted. So they have to stay apart. Like, those are just things that I feel like it's easier to relate to when you're not looking at a person. Some people might feel differently. Some people feel like they relate better when they see people going through things that they've gone through. But I think for me, it's easier to recognize that when I'm not like looking at somebody through a lens or a bias, if that makes sense. 
but the emotional intensity of this movie was also a reason why some people didn't like it. Here's Joey, who we last talked to on our episode on Winnie the Pooh. That I can't, I, I won't be able to go into this as long because I haven't seen it as an adult and I feel bad, but I could not watch The Fox and the Hound all the way through when I was a kid. Why? It gets so sad after they grow up. Like that whole first half is totally chill. They're, you know, they're two friends from different worlds having an adventure. And then when the humans make them fight, in that third act, I could not handle it as, you know, a nine-year-old or however old I was when that movie was in rotation in my house. Like, it's just brutal. Like, there's a reason why that bad directed DVD sequel takes place entirely during their childhood. Because once they grow up, it's brutal. It's a brutal movie. <laughs> um, um, would you say, when you say that it was too sad... Is that a bad, like, is that just, no, like, your personal preference? Or, like, is it just, do you think that, yeah, go into that see, a little more. Yeah, see, that's the thing. That's why I feel I should rewatch it as an adult. Because it's it's okay for kids' movies to be scary or sad or difficult. And, in fact, some of the best kids' movies are scary and sad and difficult. But just whatever point in my life fox and the hound became part of it it just i couldn't handle it i couldn't handle spending 45 minutes with those with that fox and that hound being buddies and then 45 minutes of them like fighting to the death i could not handle it (laughs) at the time um it is in no way a knock against the quality of the film it just made me real sad ray also says she has a hard time watching this movie and hates it even but more so for the emotions she felt when she reached the ending. I mean, honestly, okay, so I love and I hate Fox and the Hound. Hmm. And and the thing is, is I, I love foxes and I love dogs. My dog looks like a fox and it makes me happy. Um, but it's just the, the ending just breaks my heart. Like it just rips me to shreds every time i'm just like i can't i can't i I cannot watch the fox and pound because i know how it ends and it makes me so sad um because you know it maybe that's what makes it good though maybe that's god it's it's like a mental fight of if i like or hate that movie and i want to say i hate it more often than i like it no that's okay that's what else about like yeah no like that's valid like if that is that how is you more, feel that is a more nuanced take on a single movie than most people have given <laughs> us on the entire disney canon yes so i'll take it yes well, thank you I, I mean i'll just like add to it a little bit more yeah. to it so it doesn't sound like it's just like oh i love dogs um but like <laughs> <laughs> you, it's it's like a coming of age movie for two different lots of life and they love each other they're best friends and then all it's like it's like adulthood at the in the worst way, right? Like you're best friends with this person. It doesn't matter what your backgrounds are. Like y'all are besties, and you you will do fucking anything for one another. And then you grow apart because you grow up, and then you go down these different paths, and then your paths eventually cross, and then you die, and it's just awful. Okay, they don't die; they almost die, but it's still heartbreaking because <laughs> they they're not friends anymore, and they're not besties, and. Uh, Sorry, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. From this, it's easy to put together that to find the ending of this movie sad 
And then to feel that sadness, you need to be rooting for Todd and Copper and their friendship. You need to find it believable. And for some reason, I didn't. But you know what didn't make me cry? Uh-uh, uh-huh. Any emotional beat concerning Todd and Copper. Interesting. Say yeah. more. So here's the thing. I mean, Kind of going off... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I do agree with you. Yeah. Like, I didn't get an emotional... I was thinking about them more academically, but I want to hear what you have to say first. So I'm thinking it I'm thinking about this based on the story the movie is telling. So one thing I realized when watching this is that Disney, especially up until this point, does not do a good job creating super in-depth rounded characters or character and they and they don't their character-based storylines can be weak. So in the and what the reason why is I think it's they have so many they have like A plot, B plot, C plot. You know, there's so many different plots going on that those divergent plots can distract from the main plot and the story that that's telling. So in The Fox and the Hound, it's I felt like the beats we were hitting with Todd and Copper were very surface level and like you can kind of see like the bits of the background that would make it work but you, for some reason it just lacks the emotional depth to make it work and i think it's like we don't focus so much on what makes them you know these strong friends except you know i guess maybe kids like you just find a person you become friends you say you'll be friends forever there's that kind of like attachment mm-hmm. that you have there but it just didn't work for me. I didn't feel like we really had a reason to root for them other than, oh, but they were kids. And, like, you know, kids are friends. I'm more of the, like, well, you kind of grow up and you grow apart. Like, that's just life, you know? Fair. Anyways. I don't know. I just... And then, like, they spend so much time with these two birds trying to get this caterpillar. You yeah. know, which is which is a fine side plot, but I think is it would have... It- it would have worked better as, like, a Disney short in the 30s. hmm You know? Like, I don't think this needs to be something that's in the movie. And I think we could use that runtime, ultimately, to lend more to Todd and Copper and developing their friendship. Because, like, one weird thing that happens in this movie is, like, what is time? Like, how much time passes between Widow Tweed getting Todd and then Todd and Copper meeting? How long are Todd and Copper actually friends before Copper, like... I, I feel like this all happens in the span of like the up until like copper goes away to hunt up until there's a, a an anime ass time skip in yes here. like exactly up until that point it's just i feel like it's like three days and to me i'm like okay they've been friends three days like why do i care like i we don't like there's no reason for me to believe that these guys are actually gonna like there's any intention behind them being friends forever Um, But with that being said, I do think the moment at the end where Copper, like, stands partially in front of Todd to tell the uh, Amos, like, don't shoot him. And then Amos is like, get out of the way. And then he steps even further over Todd and, like, stares at him and kind of whines. And then Amos, like, kind of comes to that realization and drops the gun. I liked that moment. And I think that as a moment within itself is fine, but just like the build up to that point, I'm like, I did didn't make me care about their friendship. Mm-hmm. Does that all make sense? Yes. Okay. I 
because this is how my brain works. Mm. I latched on to the amount of, like, Todd is obsessed with copper. Yes. And is yearning in a way that I have not seen in in a Disney movie to this point. Right. And I'm wondering, it's not that hard to potentially ascribe a queer reading to oh, this. Oh, of course not. Like, Especially it's, with it, like... It's inviting the comparison. Well, Todd's on his back in the beginning playing with Copper's ear uh-huh. and just like looking up at him like really mischievously. Uh-huh. And you're like... It like it's it it's the same vibes I kind of got from Luca and Alberto and Luca a little bit like they they kind of fall into those similar tropes where like Copper and Luca are both kind of like more shy and timid and not as like adventurous and then you have Alberto and Todd who are just like these rambunctious mischievous like uh-huh and then they you know they form this like very this kind of relation continue no 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 you're 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 right and it's just like the coupled with like Todd's obsession and Coffer being like, yeah, totally. Uh, and then Amos being like, I will kill him if he comes around here again. Red, like, like it, it Disney absolutely did not. The studio did not ascribe any of this, but it lines up too neatly with a lot of queer experiences. Yes. Uh, especially when like, when, like when Copper comes back from hunting and uh, and Todd's like, we're still friends, right? And he's like, those days are over. I'm not that way anymore. Like, I don't... I, Nothing more masculine and heteronormative than hunting. Uh-huh, for a fucking entire two seasons. Like, it's... I, I don't know, like the compare, like it's it's there. It's not even that you don't have to dig that far to no. get to this point. No. Yeah, it's because like, and then like also the fact that this is like very much set in the South or in like rural America, you know, mm-hmm. y- you kind of just like with it's easy. It, may, it invites the reading even more, right? Like uh-huh. this whole concept of like. You know, having to like pray the gay away or shove the gay away, you know, fulfill this like super hyper masculine role, which we can say Amos, whose uh, biggest character arc is calling going from calling Widow Tweed a female to a woman. Whoa. <laughs> when he starts screaming about that darn female, I'm just like, no, I'm going to crawl out of my skin. But also, same- this movie has a this movie has such a fixation on what is natural versus unnatural. Yeah, and like ultimately, the movie does come down on the fact, like, yes, they're friends, but they still can't be together. Mm-hmm. They even- belong in different spheres of existence. And even at the end, when Co- it, like the, the last shot is Copper looking, uh, not Copper, Todd on a hill looking down at Copper. And the only reason why he kind of stops is Vixie comes up and they're like, oh, okay, hello. And then like they, he still looks down at Copper. So there's this longing at the end uh-huh. of the film. And, and you brought up a good point that I think makes me feel another reason why the friendship and that whole thing didn't work is I was convinced Todd was like, yeah, let's be friends forever. Woohoo. Like, I got that on Todd's end. But with Copper, it just kind of seemed like he was going along and he's like, oh, this is fun. But he never, like, and maybe because he has, like, this loyalty to 
his master and Amos and everything. Uh huh. But I just like you don't get the same enthusiasm or like back. Like I guess you kind of get the back and forth where he's like conflicted, but yeah, it just didn't like pack it home for me. You know. Yeah. No, I, I, I get you, and I'm with you. There's not a lot to grab onto, but what I what what is there to grab onto? Gay. Pretty fucking gay. We weren't the only ones who saw this. It was the first thing Jenna brought up when we started talking about the fox and the hound. So it's like, of course you could just say it's like little kids being friends with each other and whatnot. And it's like, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, But like the little kids are like, Todd runs into Copper one day and he's like, we're going to be friends. I'm just telling you now we're going to be friends. And if like, you know, this was like a people movie and Copper was a girl and Todd was a boy, they definitely would have ended up together by the Mm. end. They would have been childhood. They would have been, they actually would have been more like Romeo and Juliet. They would have been childhood forbidden lovers and all that jazz. Um, but they're both boys so they it can't be gay but whatever um so they become friends and they like they even have like the like the kind of quintessential like homoerotic we're in um like a lake together type scene where there's oh yeah where like and you know exactly what i'm talking about like yeah they're like swimming around in the lake pushing each other down having like a good time granted there's just supposed to be dogs having fun but you whatever um and copper ends up getting in trouble because he's going out and hanging and hanging out with the fox even though his owner does not know that he's just getting in trouble for being out and uh, kind of going off the homoerotic reading that you were talking about it's like the whole the fact that they're like forbidden friends even like, yeah that in itself is just like you know they can't be gay it reflects the fact that like oh well you we can't be gay right obviously so we gotta like shove that down right like it's also can't feel that way right also, yeah but there's like there's also like the trope of like i went away and came back different yeah that also happens like again if this was like a real person movie and this time Todd was the girl. No, actually no, make them both men. And they're both men. Copper would have gone off to like fucking military school or war and came back and was like I have seen some shit and we can't be together anymore. And that's literally would have what what it was. They also do a really good job of making Todd like a cute animal. He's so cute. Every time, like, when he was little and his he's just hiding and his eyes are so big and it's looking so up, you're cute. just like, how can you not just be, like, yeah. rooting for this fox? See, and, and this is one of the things that I think, like, there there is a bit of a triumph of this movie because, like, you look at a fox. I look at a fox mm-hmm. and I see, like, something cat-like, right? Yes. They're dogs. Yeah. Straight up. Like, they're canines. I, well, yeah, I like guess it's different because I just saw, like, Athena. I was like, this is very, like... Right, but, like, I don't know. From my brain, I'm like, yeah, cats are, like, or foxes are, like, cat software and dog hardware. But, no, like, they're, they're, they're fucking dogs. Yeah. Um, which is, like, and I think the animators did an extremely good job of letting some of the, like, like, domesticated dog character traits of 
of Todd come through mm-hmm. while also staying true to kind of like the slinkiness and uh, like the slick sleekness of foxes. Yeah. And ev- yeah. And even at the end when or like whenever like Todd goes into like attack mode like those yeah. shots were so well done. That that straight shot of him uh-huh. ready to fucking murder Copper uh-huh. is horrifying. Oh my goodness. I was like such range, such range. And you're like, that is a fox. You're, you look at it and you're like, that is that is a fox. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, no, it's 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 very good. So another reason why I think Copper's character and his motivations just didn't work for me personally and I feel like this is kind of redundant to say, but I want to say it anyway. They should have just killed Chief. Yes. Because yes, Copper absolutely. feeling so vindictive and like going up to Todd and being like, I will ne- like never forgive you for this. Like this, you, you are dead to me. Like would it's make- written. Like, it's written like he fucking died. Yes. Would make more sense if Chief died. And then yes. especially Amos going over to the widow's house and being like, I'm going to kill that fox. Would make a lot more sense uh-huh. if Chief just was dead. Like Cowards. I wish... Cowards, I say. And I think I would have been more, like, moved, and the ending would have been a better payoff, because there would have been better stakes. Common theme with these movies. Uh-huh. Lack <laughs> of stakes. Lack of stakes. Because, like, <laughs> I'm not, like, I'm not sure that they, like... Uh, Amos being like chief you gotta jump and then we cut to him just falling off the off the the bridge I'm like did he get hit by a train (laughs) did he get hit by the train (laughs) I think he got hit by the train and then fell that like he took that rock to the he took that outcropping to the back yeah I'm surprised he's he's not paralyzed honestly no he should be dead he should be dead 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 like no one survives that fall. People, and, a, a, a human would not survive that fall, let alone a, a old dog. And even like after that moment in the rest of the film, we really only see Chief in one other scene, and it's where he's so like it's the the filmmakers make it so obvious that he just hurt himself because he's like in the house, his leg bandaged up, and he's like, I just want attention. And I'm like, okay, yes, fair. But then also like. He never shows up until no. the end when he's sleeping in a barrel. So it's like, like just then, just commit, just commit to it. And then even the whole part in the beginning with like Copper earning his place on the front seat of the car would have made more sense, you know? Because right. then we see Copper slowly replacing Chief right. until Chief's just out of the picture. But like Chief's already mad that he's getting replaced, right? He's ma- like. He's get starting to get resentful of Copper and in, in like in, in 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 a very interesting reflection of how like the nine old men and like the animators were mm. very reluctant to turn over uh, control to the new crop of animators, uh, but also now how the baby boomers refuse to let go of the systems that run our fucking world and would rather throw everything to the fucking throw everything into the pit of hell then give up control um i don't i i think i think the fact like him not dying kind of reinforces that of like i'm i'm not going away you cannot get rid of me that easily but also like i think it's really interesting when we look back at the beginning of the movie where like 
Amos is like, Chief, you have to teach him how to dog. You have to teach him how to hunt and be a good dog. And he like recoils initially mm-hmm. and then like within minutes warms to copper and is like, yes, okay. Right. Which is an interesting juxtaposition to the owl and the how widow. big big mama mm-hmm. it I find it very interesting that the masculine authority figure in this takes to the parenting job faster, like quickly. Meanwhile, the first um, feminine role model puts herself in a mentor position rather than a parental one and is like, I'm not, uh-uh, mm-mm, no, no parent for me, thank you, you go with the human lady. Right. Which, like, yeah, then we also, like, we've got, uh, we still have, like, the, mo- the, like, the womanly mom, you know? So, like, it's not completely sidestepping that gender role, mm-hmm. but it's it's at least, a, there's at least one denial of it. Right. So there's there's a lot more going on here in terms of like gender and authority, mm-hmm. but also uh, it could be a lot more interesting if you just let she fucking die. I want to highlight something Tara mentioned just now, and that's the fact that they see Big Mama as taking on a mentorship role in Todd's life, not necessarily a maternal role. When Jenna watched the movie, she also saw this dynamic between Todd, Big Mama, and Widow Tweed. And has a different take on it. There is the mammy trope all within it. It's just, it's so much. Literally, we okay. come into the movie. And she's also kind of the same, like, magical Negro. Also, for those of you who don't know, there are different tropes that black people play when they're in movies. And they all suck. Unless we're actual full fleshed out characters. So I'm going to go over those real quick. But like some of the common ones are like the magical Negro, which is like the black person in the film who just happens to have like some out of this world wisdom on the subject of what at hand, or they have like magical powers that contribute to less than 2% of the film. Um, or they're using their magical powers to sacrifice themselves to save the um, protagonist, which is usually a white person. White, yeah. yeah. Then there's the black best friend. We all know that. It's just mm-hmm. like some white character has a black best friend, and that's it. It's a trope that's currently happening in um, Captain, no, in Winter, in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but I think it's intentional. Like, it's not like a, this is the black best friend in the new Captain America. It's literally like, we are trying to recreate um, what Captain America had with um, the Falcon when he came back from the ice. So, of course, we're going to just make Captain America a white man and give him a black best friend. And so that's what that feels like. So I feel like that's like an intentional black best friend, but it's because we're calling out that trope. Um. There's the thug. We all know what that means. So I'm not going to attempt. Um, Then there's the angry black woman. Once again, we all know what that is. And then there's... So this little website is being nice and calling it the domestic. It's the mammy trope. And it's basically like it is this black person's job to take care of this character that is in hand who's usually usually white white. yeah but it's like they have no other character things about them other than i am black and i take care of this small white child or this and that hmm? i was gonna say that goes back to like slave time too right where like you know the the 
the slaves in the home would often take care of their masters like children yeah and be like yeah yeah also i'm a history major so she's not like she's not asking me just because i'm black she's asking me because i'm a history major (laughs) (laughs) and i'm like no no it's i'm i have a degree in this so it's fine sometimes the mammy trope is coupled with the white savior trope not always but if you want to think of like a white savior trope think of that hillary swank movie where she goes into the black school and teaches all the kids how to read even though they're in high school and they suddenly become so much better granted i know it's based off a true story but still um but yeah um the other one is like the jezebel which is like a black female character who's just a slut and it's just like that's her whole dynamic is she is there to cause drama by being a whore and we and we love that we love that but yeah but what the one that happens in fox and the hound is there's a mammy trope and i don't even know when the fox and the hound came out 81 right so like what were you doing (laughs) so explain a bit about how the mammy trope plays into the fox and the hound like where are these parallels that you're seeing so let me let's 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 open up the imdb so we can know for sure so peril bailey she's known for the all-black production of hello dolly that came out in 1968 that won her that won her a tony but yeah but she debuted her acting, her, she appeared on vaudeville in Broadway in 1946. And that's where she like started her acting career. Um, And for the most part, she is great. Pearl Bailey plays, um, (laughs) God damn it. Her name's also Big Mama. (laughs) So like, Uh. there's also, there's also that. And like, this kind of makes me annoyed because I had a big mama and that's like a thing that you call like I'm from the south so I'm from Texas like I said I'm from I'm from the suburbs it's like I grew up like my formative years were in the suburbs but before that I grew up in like a small town in like southeast Texas right next to Louisiana um and big mama and big daddy are what you call like your great grandparents like that's just what you call them um so um and that might be different for like different people but i know like in my black structure and the black structure that i grew up around if you had great grandparents that's what they were called and so my great grandma and my great grandpa were big mama and big daddy until i was like five and that's when they passed away um Mm -hmm. And then my grandpa was papa and like my grandmother passed away when I was a kid. And so my maternal grandmother was granny. But like, for the most part, everything else makes logical sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, so that kind of irks the, the fuck out of me. I forgot that's what her name was. <laughs> but all right. Um, but she, basically she comes in, uh, like literally... I think what happens is uh, the first time we see her, it is, so who is the, who is, so Amos is the guy who like is the hunter in like whatever. And so we assume it is Amos. We don't know if it's Amos, but there is a fox who's running around with a baby fox in her mouth and she's trying to protect the baby because the baby, um, is going to die if she dies basically and so 
what happens is the mother (laughs) sees, so she like sees this owl, right? In this tree. And she's like, and so, and what she does is she like makes like a noise or whatever to get the owl's attention. And once the owl kind of looks at her, she, she takes off like, but she drops something at the bottom of the fence, which is, um, Ted. I think that's the, the fox's name is Ted. Todd. Mm-hmm. Todd. Cause he, cause he, mm. he's a toddler. So, so she drops who later becomes Todd off at the bottom of this fence um, and then takes off and then we hear a gunshot so we know that like whoever was hunting her presumably got her because we never see her again after that mm-hmm. um, but she makes the noise and this owl is like what was happening so this owl flies down and sees um, this baby fox and at first she's like oh no ma'am you left your child and then she hears the gunshot and it's like oh, okay um <laughs> But, like, that's, like, the first time you see her. And it's very evident that it's, like, that it kind of feels like, oh, there is a woman here that I feel will take care of my child, even though it's just, like, a it's an owl, not another fox, but sure. And she drops off the owl, and it's like, cool, we're good. And then within, like, ten, like, within, like, ten minutes, um, the owl takes it upon herself to, like, take... Todd under her wing literally um and metaphorically and then goes out and finds like the she's basically a dairy farmer and goes out and finds a dairy farmer and it's like and like taps on her window or whatever so she comes outside and she finds baby fox so that they've also be taken care of so that's kind of what she does but like the way she speaks it's very much just like uh-huh yep she it's like you are definitely here to take care of somebody and basically from that point until like we the last time we see her in the film she basically is um like a mix between the mammy trope and like the magical negro the whole Mm -hmm. time because yeah she also it's like because she gives um Todd like realistic advice like you probably shouldn't be friends with Copper much longer because he's gonna turn out to be a hunting dog and he's gonna have to hunt you eventually um so there's that and um but like it's one of those things where like Todd's like eh, I'll be fine <laughs> Todd's wrong but like but like it's like she has this foresight that we're not supposed to have even though you know we're watching a movie about a fox being a being best friends with a hound dog so it makes sense um but yeah but that's basically it and she also is there to like wrangle there's like these two birds that are also in the film like it's a woodpecker and something else i don't know what it is oh is it like a caterpillar well the cat yeah the woodpecker is trying to eat the caterpillar like the whole film right. and can't do it um and then the then there's like another bird it might be like it might be a crow i'm not sure but she basically like mothers all of these little all of these animals um and takes and takes care of them without like explicitly saying she's taking care of them but she's taking care of all of them and that's basically her entire character um mm. besides when she plays matchmaker at the end of the movie with um todd and whatever the girl fox's name is 
continue what you were talking about when it comes to parental authority and like the gender stuff they're doing compared to other like women who kind of fall into into these like maternal roles i feel like widow tweed is more well-rounded than most how so how so well okay so in my mind like okay obviously she's a woman so as soon as she sees the cute little baby she goes into mom mode and is like i'm gonna take care of you like to the point where she's like feeding it with a bottle right yeah but at the same time she kind of like and then like you know you have that moment at the end where she's like bandaging up amos's foot (sighs) because that's like you know the typical thing the woman would do like even though this man's like verbally abusing her and has threatened her like she's still gonna fill that role right yeah fucking better person than me right but at the same time like i don't know amos was like shooting at her car and how does she uh-huh. do she grabs the gun and shoots the radiator instead you of putting what? up with Fair. his shit and i was yeah. like i'm like that is such a bold move not to mention she's an older woman mm-hmm. right and she is a widow like she's on her own so like in I don't know. I feel like they could have painted her in a worse way. <laughs> like, you know, obviously she's on her own. She has to know how to stand up for herself. And she does. And honestly, it's not like she's overreacting. Like, no, I think that's entirely justified. Like, if this man is so dead set on killing a fox that he is going to shoot at a moving car where someone is very, a human is very clearly driving it, then yeah. Like, I will Shoot say, the radiator. yeah, yeah. I will say, it. Amos not great at hit, not great at hitting uh, Todd with the gun. However, good enough shot that he has not murdered Widow Tweed yet. <laughs> but then also, like, it makes you wonder, like, he had, like, he's clearly killed like all these animals by the number of pelts we see in this thing. Like, how does he just? Well, probably because he's steering with one hand and shooting with the other. But also, like, sir, sir, I'm sorry. Like, that is not the most strategic way to go about this. Like, what do you think you're going to accomplish here? That's the thing. He's not thinking. (sighs) Pure instinct. It's about drive. It's about power. (laughs) We stay hungry. We devour. (laughs) But then at the same time, like, you know, you have this, like, with him, very typical, like, masculine, like, you know, man lives on his own with his dogs and hunts, and he's an idiot. Yeah. Like, like, sir... (laughs) He's in no way like some man that any, hopefully, any male identifying person watching this would want to aspire to be. You know, you look at him and you're just kind of like, sir. (laughs) Even like when he gets all upset and Widow Tweed's like, you need to calm down. And he's like, I am calm. And he's very clearly not calm. You're like, love this. It's clear Amos, the film's antagonist, makes a lot of questionable decisions that are informed by his anger Uh, jenna noticed this as well and had a similar reaction the real like the real villain of the whole thing is amos because he's like the hunter and he's supposed to be like the dickhead but basically like he literally gets like his foot caught in a bear trap and then he like like doesn't get killed by a bear so he like takes himself on home um and widow top like widow tweed is the one who like is taking care of him and i was like that doesn't make any lick of sense you made me get rid of my only pet because you couldn't fucking control your fucking temper all right 
it's whatever. It's it's, it's, when men lose their temper, they don't really mean it. It's no. just in their nature. No, ladies. But, they, so we should still care for them. Ladies, that's a cold stone lie. If a man loses his temper, that is normal. Everybody loses their temper sometimes. But you still have every right to call him out on it because you yes. don't have to you don't have to be a you don't have to like you can lose your temper and like still not be like the biggest shithead like you possibly could be but if you lose your temper and you're the biggest shithead known to man yeah no once again <laughs> another running trope within within a lot of not just disney movies but movies in general is um i think movies in general really try to hammer home just because you're a white man does not mean you can do shit. Like, I think a lot of movies try to hammer that in and the girls just don't get it. Because literally, like, so she takes in Todd and basically Amos basically says, if I see that uh, fox on my property again, I'm going to kill him. Um, and she is like, well, he roams. So if he is over there, he might get killed. So she basically puts him in her car and drives all the way out to the game preserve and lets him go. And basically the game preserve is, is basically, um, it's not even, it's like a wildlife refuge slash like a national park or whatever. So you can't hunt in there. Uh, so then she comes back home and Amos goes, well, I haven't seen that fox. That means she probably took him to the game preserve. Well, we got to go hunt down a fox. And I was like, you cannot hunt in there. If you hunt in there, you will go to jail. Like, why is it this? Why is this a thing that you just don't give a fuck about? Like, I don't get it. But yeah. that's like this. It's That's how it is with this movie. It's the same way it is with the poacher in... Um, the rescuers down under it's very much like i don't have consequences because i'm a white man and you're like false that is mm. not how that works you have no. all the consequences because you are doing something illegal but most of the girls don't get that they're just like i can ignore this blatant sign and go do it anyway yes and that's what happens. Anyways, all this to say, I think this is a step of an improvement from where we have seen Disney present gender. It's still not perfect, but I feel like, oh man, that's interesting is like you have these two like human characters who to me feel more rounded than their pets. I mean, yeah. Who the movie's supposed to be about. Yeah. Our, our protagonists are paper thin at best. Yes. I wouldn't say the the human. I wouldn't say the humans have depth to them, but they're oh, at no. least like there's at least some definition. Like they put some shading on them at least. <laughs> Little shadowing on the curves and things, you know. Yeah. 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 Um. Uh, let's see. I am never going to grow tired of the disney protagonist uh ethos of i've been abandoned by my parents and are being hunted to an inch of my life by my oldest friend better get laid i will never grow tired of this it was in that moment that i was also like wow this like this like feels there's so many moments in this that feel like Bambi, right? Uh-huh. Because it was also in that moment that I realized, while well, Bambi had an owl character that was kind of like the mentor guide for Bambi. 
just a man. Yep. I was like, that's the, fun. The, you're right. The owls do have a tendency to get the forest animals Twitter-pated. What is it? What? Why? Why the owls? I don't know. I mean, they're supposed to be wise, but what? What are? What are? The, what are the owls up to that they know so much about this? <laughs> well, they have those big eyes. They're probably just watching all the time. Th- that's so they true. Learn. That's true. Fucking weirdos. <laughs> Close your damn windows. But also, you bring up a point. Vixie did not need to be in this. No. At all. Uh-uh. And honestly, is another distraction uh-huh. to Copper and Todd's relationship and friendship, whatever it, it's supposed to be. Right? Like, we yeah. don't... It's it's like they threw it in there because they're like, well, we have to establish that they're both men. Copper's a hunter, so obviously he's he's your typical heteronormative man. He hunts. Todd, it's fine. Though, Todd, though, what? was raised by a single woman. We need to prove that he still has a sex drive. Because God forbid. God, that moment where they're just walking through the woods and Vixie just goes, I think six is enough. And I'm like, why? And then Todd's like, six what? Six what? Huh? <laughs> Huh? Which is so, like, I just, I loved that. I was like, yeah, Todd. And I think, again, lends to the queer reading, right? Because, uh-huh. of course, his mind isn't on children and, like, procreating with Vixie. Like. Yeah. He also has had a rough 24 hours. That's Fucking, true. What was that? What was that bear's name? Bongo? The, <laughs> the bear that got. Yeah, it was bongo. A real big bongo situation of I got dumped in the woods and I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Literally, like No, you're it, right. It, yeah, Fox and the Hound with really rain scene and everything. Yeah, Fox and the Hound really is just I have been freed from the shackles of capitalism. Oh no, what do I do now? <laughs> it is well, okay. it is nothing we haven't seen before. How is how is Todd though in capitalism before? No, I, I, oh, okay. okay. I I got my okay. wires crossed on that one. We can Okay. No, that is it, I, I meant I was going to say that it's just it really is just recycled bits from all the Disney movies. And then my mind was like, what was my read on Bongo? Oh, right. And then I proceeded to say that instead of what my initial point was. No, you're fine. You're fine. Um, <laughs> but yes, Vixie, it's just, again, so unnecessary. It is. Like, what also, does she actually I'm... do? Uh... I don't know. Like, how She's does just... she serve the plot? The whole back half of that movie could have happened with, like, the whole chase with the fire and the hole. Like, except I guess it gives Todd yeah. a place to hide in. But like, I still. mean, but also it's not that hard to find a hole in the ground, dude. Also, it would have been better if you just went into the badger's home, and then like and had let to the deal badger with... handle it. Right. <laughs> that badger's scary. Oh my god! Right. That badger is like Amos, but animal. Yes. When he when he when he trots out the good old fashioned go back where you came from, I'm just like ah, get get. There it is. <laughs> no, terrifying. Um, yeah, that badger voted leave. I bet. <laughs> and then you have piglet porcupine like which always he's a, a always neighbor, great, a always new great neighbor. You need to be nice. <laughs> Don't be rude while there's a new neighbor in town. Uh, that that moment where Todd wakes up because he gets stabbed by porcupine oh. piglet and is just like where am i i'm like dog mood has has happened to me oh. uh that was me on monday i woke up and had to like re- i couldn't remember where i was or what day it was like 
It's Thursday. No. Saturday? Friday. No, it's Monday. Oh, it's Monday. <laughs> yeah, my last note was, glad she's woman and not female at the end. <laughs> I think my I, the only note I haven't uh, touched on is... As understandable as Widow Tweed's choice is, Todd is a house pet. He won't survive in the wild. No. What are you doing? And you definitely see that. Immediately. Immediately. I was like, how are you so bad at this? And I'm like, oh, yeah, because he was lit- it's literally like throwing a, a house pet out into the wild and being it would like, be, good luck. It, it would literally be like taking my dog out into the middle of the oh. woods and just being like, figure it out. Margo, no. <laughs> No, absolutely not. Margo doesn't deserve. I think the only difference is Margo wouldn't let you leave without her. <laughs> yeah, she'd just follow you. <laughs> she'd be like, no, I'm coming home. I'm going to, no, mm-mm, mm And I thought the kids were cute. Like, I I thought it was the less, one of the <sighs> least grating voice acting performances. Yeah, like, they're fine. Like, they're believable as kids. I guess. I don't know. I'm pretty sure my opinions on children are documented pretty oh, well yeah, here. Oh, you're good. I was just thinking compared to the Aristocats. Oh, yeah, no, at absolutely. At least they weren't like, I'm a lady, Okay, don't, no, you're, no, stop, you're good. <laughs> All right, so rankings. Yes. Rankings here at the, the end of this so this have, leg of the journey before before all hell breaks loose upon my my shoulders. <laughs> okay, so there's one of two ways I think we can do this. Yeah. So, A, we kind of do what we did the last time, and we each go through our entire list, or we just start from the bottom and both say what our movie is. And then we, like, so we'll do 24, we both do 24, then we both do 23, then we both do 22. How do you want to do it? Uh, I have 23. I am missing one, I guess. <laughs> Whoops. Okay, hold on. Yeah, I have 24. Oh, boy. What did I forget? Um, Let's see. We did 101 Dalmatians. Okay, well, how about this, then? Uh, you go through your list, and I'll figure out which one of mine I'm missing <laughs> okay, from, based on that. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. Yeah, and we can haul <laughs> through it. We don't need to... We don't, like... Uh, the first time we did this, we gave some explanation. We right. do all the... We, we're fine. Just we're fine. go through it. Okay. So, at number 24, we still have Fun and Fancy Free. <laughs> if anyone's curious, it's half a star on Letterboxd, because I don't think I can give it zero stars. Uh, number 23 is Make Mind Music. Number 22 is Saludos Amigos. Number 21 is The Three Caballeros. 20 is Melody Time. And 19 is Bambi. Now, this is the start of the new batch. Ooh, ba- yeah. I forgot how low Bambi is for you. Yeah, no. So at number 18, we have Sword in the Stone. 17 is Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. 16 is Lady and the Tramp. 15 is Robin Hood. 14 is Dumbo. 13, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Don't hate me for this. Number 12 is Winnie the Pooh. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> 11 is Fantasia, so we're still top half for Fantasia. I'll, t- I'll take the W where I can get it. 10 is Aristocats. 9 is 101 Dalmatians. 8 is Fox and the Hound. That's, that's the most recent one, and I keep switching these up, so it might move down later, but that's where I'm putting it for now. Seven is Cinderella. 
Six is The Rescuers. Five is Pinocchio. Four is The Jungle Book. Three is Alice in Wonderland. Two is Peter Pan. And one is Sleeping Beauty. Fair enough. Uh, apparent. See, not not great uh, because apparently the one that I forgot was Lady and the Tramp. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you might want to put that one in. Whoops. It happens. Uh huh. I think. Mm, no, that's still twenty-three. Weird. What? I guess I'll just go. Hmm. I guess I could just go through it, and you could be like, "What about this one?" Yeah. If you okay. if you don't catch anything. Okay. So as is, knowing that I am missing one. Whoops. <laughs> Oops. Wait. So if you put just put in Lady and the Tramp, then you were at twenty-two. No, I was at 23. Lady and the Tramp was already on the list, and I just missed it. Oops. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll find out. Okay. We'll find out. Okay. Minor are spread kind of all throughout. There is no, no like, start of the new batch, because mm-hmm. we're going to, like, you'll, you'll see. So, currently, my 23, because remember, I'm, I'm, I'm missing one mm-hmm. somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's fun and fancy free down at the bottom. Woo! 22 is Saludos Amigos. Uh-huh. 21 is Make Mine Music. Uh-huh. 20 is Melody Time. Mm-hmm. 19 is Jungle Book. Oh. 18 is Lady and the Tramp. Okay. 17 is Three Caballeros. Interesting. Again, I have the nostalgic emotional right. appeal to that, but it's right. not enough to get it out of top the bottom half. Yeah. 16 is Fox and the Hound. Okay. 15 is Sword in the Stone. Okay. 14 is Robin Hood. Uh-huh. 13 is Peter Pan. 12 is The Rescuers. 11 is 101 Dalmatians. 10 is Snow White. So Snow White is pushed into the top half somehow just on virtue of it being pretty. Yeah. Literally just on virtue of it being pretty. Uh, 8 is The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. 7 is Dumbo. 6 is Bambi. 5 is Pinocchio. 4 is The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Mm -hmm. 3 is Alice in Wonderland. 2 is Sleeping Beauty. One is Fantasia. I am missing the Aristocats. You are missing the Aristocats. <laughs> um, then let me go ahead and vibe this out. Because I feel like it doesn't crack. It definitely does not crack top half. Right. But it has to be better than the package films. Yep. That's always a good marker is, is it better than the package films? Uh, and the answer is consistently going to be yes going forward. <laughs> The question is, how far into the teens does it go? Because I can comfortably move it to 17, above three caballeros. Mm-hmm. I think I think I can pretty comfortably put it at 14 between Peter Pan and Robin Hood. With Peter Pan on the low and Robin Hood on the high. Uh, no. Peter Pan is 13, Aristocats is 14, Robin Hood is 15. Got it. Okay. So I think that, I think that's perfect. I think that's fair. Like all of the Xerox ones, except for Winnie the Pooh are so mid. (laughs) Yeah. I think for me, like Jungle Book made it up there just from nostalgia, if I'm being honest. Um, But I thought the rescuers was like, honestly, the, like one of the better ones and that was yeah. one that surprised me um yeah that's why it takes that's why it pushes into like i mean I, yeah that's why it's the halfway point for me right like everything above that is basically pretty except hmm 
Well, and for me, no, the thing I, is, I, I need, well, hmm, a, you need a to rethink. Ooh, I almost hit delete. <laughs> I'm also delete rethinking this. Hold on, I'm not happy. I'm not happy with this either because Hold I'm sitting on. here thinking I'm like Snow White is not better than the rescuers. I'm sorry, it's not, and I'm now <laughs> just dragging it down to see how, like, what what point do I stop? I'm also thinking the Fox and the Hound should not be top ten. No, that doesn't God, make sense. No. no. Okay, hold on. Because that's more than top half. Like that's okay. Those okay, are, those are spots. I think I know where it goes now. I mean, but it's pretty. That's the thing. This will be a so now that we're halfway through this. Now we're halfway through the Disney canon, right? Mm-hmm. Roughly. Mm-hmm. It's going to get complicated. God. Because the next stretch of movies that we're going to do. Uh huh. Okay. We will probably get yelled at if we put them anywhere below the bottom, below the halfway point of our list. Like, can you imagine how mad people will be if one of us is like, the Lion King is bad? I mean, people would be mad, but I don't really care. I mean, same. Because fair. again, I've they're never... not the ones sitting here actually watching these in order. I mean, right? they might like, be. They, they might, might be. be. If but you're watching also, along like, with us, pers- why? <laughs> but also, like, it's personal preference. Like, I think just comparing our lists alone shows there's really no, like, empirical, like... Oh, yeah, of course. This one is better than any other one. Like, this is just all personal preference. I mean, no, that's not true. Fantasia's objectively better than the other movies on these lists. If it makes you feel better, I just reordered it because I was thinking. And uh-huh. Fox and the Hound is now below Fantasia. Let's and go. Winnie the Pooh. So Fox and the Hound, for me right now is 12 so like right okay. in the middle so in between ichabod and mr toad and winnie the pooh we will tweet out these lists oh yeah definitely when this episode goes live because this is so confusing <laughs> i know both, it... like staring at it like well is this really what i feel but also this is that good good podcast shit <laughs> people love listening to other people make lists of things i know right it's good it's, content yeah. it's good <laughs> it's great content Great oh my gosh okay i feel better about this i feel better about this too okay. i am going to be interested to see where the next set fall yeah like me the too. next like from here through the end of the 90s basically is the next set is the next set yeah basically from here until to until fantasia 2000 black cauldron are black we cauldron. including fantasia 2000 because i feel like we will we will we will have to discuss that i was gonna say because i feel like turn of the century stuff should be its own thing its own thing so i feel like we need to go from black cauldron to tarzan i would agree i think that's the next the next i think that's the next i think that's our next set yes uh gosh things are gonna get crazy (laughs) because that is that is the renaissance yes that is the big shit the big heavy hitters Mm -hmm. that is like 12 movies in the span of 12 years it is a ridiculous amount of output yeah on top of oh no it'll be great yeah but and i need i need the listeners to be aware of this we are changing who is doing the writing now i will be taking you are free and now i am cursed for eternity (laughs) which means uh, I am also a less insane person than Alex is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are. Yeah. I will be 
focused on different aspects of Disney history going forwards. I will try my best to cover production as much as I can, but we are rapidly approaching the era of Disney where they become an inscrutable black hole that prizes the notion of Disney magic over transparency. And because of that, all of the all of the behind the scenes stuff that they have put out, I have very little interest in acknowledging or paying any credence to. So I will be working basically off of whatever I can find external, uh, but I will be leaning very heavily on Disney War, uh, the the nonfiction book chronicling the rise and subsequent fall of one Michael Eisner and Je- uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Woo! Uh, so my f- um the the focus of the history sections will probably shift more to Disney glo- Disney corporate and Disney gl- the global entity we know of it as today. I will not that is not to say I will be completely eschewing the production side where it is where it is going to come up because it has to come up in that stuff. Right. But I will not be turning the production of every movie into this grand narrative. <laughs> Which has been exceptional to listen to, but I do not have the time, quite frankly. No, and honestly, if you did do that, we'd probably have to take another year off. And I refuse to do that. That's totally fair. Plus, like, at this point, I've kind of covered everything that I had um, intrinsic interest in. I'm interested in everything you're going to cover. Um, yeah. But not to the point that I'm gonna, I am gonna. I want to, like, read a bunch of books and learn stuff on my own. Exactly. I just, I want to absorb through what you read. <laughs> Yes, I am interested in production history as it relates to the corporate politicking of Disney writ large. Mm-hmm. Like, the circumstances by which Treasure Planet came about is deeply fascinating, more so than the actual production of Treasure Planet itself. So that is the kind of production history I will try to focus on. So it'll just be a very different uh, interpretation of what history is. Right. And I'm very excited to get into it because I've already started research and boy, howdy, I fucking hate these people. I'm so ready to be outraged. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. So with that being said, um, I'm not going to say how long it's going to be until you'll hear from us again, because last time I said a month and it was more like 12. Um, So you'll hear from us. Just check our Twitter at DreamDeeperPod and we'll keep you updated through there. Any and... question? Any questions you have? Uh, dream a little deeper podcast at gmail If we get enough, we might do another Q and A because yeah, that was fun. That so, was fun, and it'd be a great way to kick off the next movement. Uh huh. So send us your questions. I assume you are going to have questions about why our opinions are bad. I mean, please tell me why us disliking your favorite Disney movie is bad. Yeah, I would. I want to hear it. No, me too. Justify it. That's why we tried why, to interview a bunch of an people. Email. So an and an email, honestly. Also, if you've watched The Fox and the Hound and it's not blurry in those scenes we talked about, let us know. Yeah. Is the rendering it, bad on Disney Plus? We want to know. If you have like a Blu-ray copy of it, pop that sucker in. See if that transfers any better. Or if that transfer is also terrible. Who could say? Who can I, say? I certainly can't. <laughs> uh, but what I can say is, I guess... Uh, I or one of us will say in a couple of seconds uh, d- d- join us for the Black Cauldron later goodbye bye well that's all from us this week 
You can find our show on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And hey, if you like what you hear, be sure to leave us a review. Uh, five stars only, of course. You can find me on Twitter at Alex underscore Isaac. And you can find me at play underscore champion. You can also follow the show at Dream Deeper Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And you can write to us at dreamalittledeeperpod at gmail.com. Special thanks to all our guests who took the time to talk to us for this episode. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily underscore Michelle. You can follow Joey on Twitter at RMFezman, and he said to encourage our listeners to support local theater. You can find Ray on Twitter at Ray Summy. You can find her design work on FilmCred and on her Instagram page, The Design Demon. You can hear more from Jenna on her podcast, The Opinionated Podcast. For show updates, follow The Opinionated Podcast underscore on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. Join us next time as we undergo a major shift and discuss the Black Cauldron. Until then, dream on, silly dreamers.